Good morning. This morning we are finishing up our series. This is part two of For Non-Christians Who Doubt. And this is also part four of our like four-week emphasis on the topic of doubt. So if you didn't know, like four weeks ago, we started with For Christians Who Doubt, part one, and then we did For Christians Who Doubt, part two. And then last week, For Non-Christians Who Doubt, part one. And today is now For Non-Christians Who Doubt, part two. Today, I want to start off with an illustration that will seem like it has nothing to do with the Bible at first. Um, And I'll just let you know, I'm going to make the connection in a few minutes. But first, before I get to that, let me just say it. Um, Imagine if you um, had some sort of like special news that most people were unaware of. Um, In this case, let's imagine that you are like a researcher or a historian of some sort, and you have found out that the first person to step foot on the moon is Buzz Aldrin. Let's just imagine through your research, you found out, um, and, and you have like documents and whatever, like evidence to prove that you could show like that that's what people should think because that's what happened. Okay, that the, Buzz Aldrin was actually the first man to walk on the moon. Maybe you know that um, there was a spacewalk that happened before the one that was televised, or maybe they switched spacesuits, or maybe they lied, or whatever it is you have evidence of. But imagine you have evidence of this, and most people don't know. And now you're trying to tell people, well, actually, Buzz Aldrin was the first one on the moon, and Neil Armstrong was the second person on the moon. It's, it's different than what we all thought. And so imagine that's, you're trying to tell people. Um, the way that you would inform people of that the way that you would try to persuade people to believe what you've come to, the conclusion you've come to, would vary depending on the person that you're talking to, wouldn't it? Yeah, so so imagine the first group of people that you go and you talk to, and here you go, you're trying to present this information that you've all, you've prepared. Um, Imagine the first group that you talk to is the Neil Armstrong fan club, right? These people are like super excited that their guy was the first person on the moon, and what are you going to say to them? Well, whatever you had planned to say, you're going to probably say it a little bit different. You've got the information, but the tone, the way that you say it, in fact, it might be that you start off with, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for having me. Uh, this will be hard to hear, but, right? However, let's say the next day after you make your presentation and you talk to them, what's, let's say the next day, the group of people that you talk to are the descendants of Buzz Aldrin, okay? It's a room full of Buzz Aldrin's grandchildren. Would you say it differently? Yeah, I mean, even though it's the same information, you'd probably start off with something like, I have such good news for you. Your grandfather was actually the first person to step foot on the moon. And then imagine after you say that, imagine then the next day you go and you talk to a group of people and what they all have in common is it's a group of people who all believe the moon landing was faked. Is the information, is the way you're going to say it going to be different for them? Oh yeah, totally different. You're probably going to start off with something like, let me explain why you should believe that the Apollo 11 mission happened. And I got to explain that before I can even get to the, the new thing I want to tell you today. And so my point is that the same information can take different forms depending on the audience. And the gospel is like that. The gospel, and I guess the kind of in its simplest form, it is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again, right? That that information, let's say you're someone who wants people to know that, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again. Well, the way that you're going to talk about that is going to be different depending on who you're talking about. Imagine you're, you're saying, I want to go tell people Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and he, he rose again. And imagine um, the first person that you go to talk to is someone who believes that there's a God, believes in heaven and believes in hell, and is just burdened, burdened with shame and thinks that they're probably going to hell because of what they've done. 
They're just crushed with guilt and shame. Maybe they've just done something that's like a crime, but nobody knows about it yet, and they're worried about getting caught. Or maybe they um, have done, maybe they got an abortion and they re- now they regret it. Maybe they are, have done something that like, people consider to be um, you know, really, really awful, like child abuse or something like that. And, and they are just shackled down with guilt. And then you come along with the gospel. Is that going to affect the way you say it? Oh, yeah, because you may say to this person, oh, I have such good news for you. You don't have to go to hell. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and he rose again. But then imagine the next day you go and you talk to a a person who is like the most self-righteous person that you've ever met. And so this person believes that there's a God and believes in heaven and believes in hell and they definitely believe they're going to heaven because of how great they are. Right? They, they, so, I mean, they would say, like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not perfect, nobody's perfect, but I'm, I'm better than, like, almost everybody else I've met, okay? And I have worked really hard to be good, and I have earned it. If there's a seat up there, like, I'm, there's one for me, right? Because I've done the right things. Would you say it differently? Well, yeah, you wouldn't say to that person, like, oh, I have good news for you, you're not going to hell. They'd be like, I know, I know I'm not going to hell, right? You would, you would have to say, almost, you'd almost have to alter it and say, actually, I have bad news and good news for you. Right? The bad news I have for you is you, like, you, you have not earned your way to heaven. That's not even something you could do. The good news is Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose again. And then imagine after you talk to that person, the next day you go and you talk to another person, imagine the other person is an atheist. You're going to say it differently to that person, aren't you? Yeah, because you can't say to that person, hey, I've got good news to you, You're not, you don't have to go to hell. They're going to go, I don't think there is a hell. And you can't say to them, like, hey, i got bad news for you. You are not good enough to have earned heaven right? They're going to say, I don't, I don't think there is a heaven. So there's going to be a whole other tactic that you're going to have to take, right? It's the same news, but it's going to sound different, different angles for different people. And so today I am talking about people who doubt Christianity, but I'm aware there are all different types of people who doubt Christianity for different reasons. And so there are multiple angles at which I could have sort of preached this sermon, you know, depending on the person I'm thinking about that I'm talking to. Um, and, but yet, I got to pick one. Like, I got to say something. And so, I'm going to keep with the same theme that I have used throughout this series so far, with atheism or agnosticism being my primary alternative to Christianity, as I preached to you this morning. I am aware that Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism are also alternatives to Christianity. But I'm going to guess, I mean, I guess I don't know for sure, but I've lived in this town quite a bit of my life. I'm going to guess the average O'Callan who has rejected, some, you know, has in some way rejected Christianity is more likely to have rejected it in favor of sort of general unbelief than they are to have rejected it in favor of one of those other religions I listed. So I'm just letting you know that now, like kind of a disclaimer. I, I'm aware if I were preaching this morning in Lebanon or in India, I would probably need to preach a whole different sermon than the one I'm preaching. But Ocala is where we are. So that's why I'm approaching this the way I am. So in light of that, today I want to give you four arguments that point to the existence of God. Okay? Today I'd like to give you four arguments, not only that point to the existence of God, but four arguments that point to the existence of a God like the God of the Bible. And I'm going to give you all four of them right now, at least the names of them right now. We'll just give you my four points right here, and I'll just go through them one at a time. But these are the arguments. The argument from morality, the argument from truth and falsehood, the purpose argument, and the this world is not all there is argument. Um, argument here meaning not like fighting, but just like, you know, a system of thought. So these are the names that 
this is what I call them. Uh, I don't, maybe, I, there might be people smarter than me that have different names for these things. But, but anyway, here we go. This is what I call them. So the argument for morality will be the first thing I want to talk with you about. What is the argument for morality? It goes like this. Right and wrong exist. And everybody kind of knows that. You, just, you know that right and wrong exist as you live your life. You shouldn't kill me. I shouldn't kill you. We all somehow know this. We have obligations to one another, and we almost don't have to even prove that. We just know we have obligations to one another. I'm not supposed to steal from you. You're not supposed to lie to me. I'm not supposed to assault you. We just know that we have these obligations to one another. And these obligations are real, and they're transcendent, and they're universal. And by transcendent, I mean they are a level above us. They're not just like made up by us. Because if it were just made up by us, it would really just be our opinions. Like, like the, the idea that I shouldn't kill you, most of us would admit, like that's not just a preference. That's not just an opinion we have. We would say, no, that's like, regardless of what anybody thinks, that's from on high. Like that's, there's something above us that says we're not supposed to do that. That's not just our opinion, right? It's, it's transcended. It's from above us. It's not just a preference. Um, it's universal, meaning it applies to everybody, whether they say they believe it or not. Like morality, especially the things we think of when we think about right and wrong, we would say they apply to every single person, even if that person says, I don't believe that. For instance, let me give you an example. Let's say there's a guy that robs a bank, okay? <clears throat> the guy robs a bank, he gets arrested, and then they go put him on trial. And when he gets on trial, let's imagine that they put him in the, you know, in the whatever box where you give testimony in a courtroom, whatever that's called, witness stand or whatever it is. And there he is. And imagine they're asking him questions and he says, yes, I robbed the bank, right? Actually, I robbed three of them. And I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's bad to do that. Actually, I think it's good to do that. What would happen? I'm telling you, we would not say, oh, well, okay, that's your morality, right? No, they would take that guy and they would lock him in a little room for years and years and years, right? They'd put him in jail because, why? Because we believe that he is obligated to not rob banks whether he admits to it or not, right? That's how much, that's how much we don't think it's just our opinions or preference, but this is a transcendent and universal reality. But once we realize that, and pretty much everybody lives like that and acts like that's true, just assumes that, but, but that brings up an important question, says who? Like we say there are these obligations that we have to one another that are transcendent and universal, but if there is no God, where did this universal transcendent obligation come from? You see, because if there's a law, there's a law giver. If there's a rule, there's a rule maker. But if there is no transcendent law giver, then what we call morality is actually just human preference. And yet we know it's not human preference. Like it's so obvious to us that it's not just our opinions, it's bigger than that. And if it's not obvious to you, it becomes obvious to you when someone sins against you, right? If someone burns your house down, you do not say to them, I would have preferred you not do that, but you had no obligation to do otherwise, right? So point number one is that no one can practically live like morality doesn't exist. Like everyone presupposes a theistic worldview, right? Everyone presupposes some kind of lawgiver. It's the only way to live. Human morality points to God. Number two, the argument from truth and falsehood. Now, this one is actually a variation of the argument from morality. Uh, maybe, maybe in some ways all of these are. 
Um, but I like to list some of them separately, especially this one I like to list separately because I, I think it's helpful for the small minority of people who deny that there is a transcendent morality. You will every once in a while come across someone who will go, no, I actually think that don't murder is a human opinion. There's, it doesn't come from any level above us because there's not a level above us. Now, I, I, I've, actually, I've, I'm 42. I think I've only met one that I know of, but I had a friend who was an atheist and I hung out with him every week for years and years. And he was, so I know there's at least one person that believes that and I'm, there's probably many others. Okay, and so let me say this. <laughs> um, okay, maybe you don't believe in right and wrong as a, as a transcendent thing, but here's the thing. Everyone believes in true and false. Like, everybody knows that there are sentences that are true and there are sentences that are false, right? You pretty much have to believe that in order to communicate with your fellow man. But true and false are moral constructs. <laughs> I had a seminary professor who said it something like this. He said, truth is what ought to be believed. Falsehood is what ought not be believed, which is true, right? That's what we think. When we think about true things, but it's not actually that it's just true. There's, it, it puts an obligation on us. And once you think something's true, you're supposed to act like it's true. And once you know something's false, you're supposed to reject it. You're supposed to act like it's false. But who says? Like that puts you right back into the, the transcendent and universal morality, right? Um, like when, it, when an agnostic says... People should not believe in God unless there is enough evidence that he exists, right? Can you picture an agnostic person saying that, right? People should not believe in God unless there is enough evidence that he exists. That person started borrowing from a religious worldview as soon as he said people should, right? People should believe or people should not believe. Who says? Who says that you're obligated to believe true things or obligated to, you know, reject false things? Who says? So truth itself points to God. Number three, the purpose argument. The purpose argument goes like this. If there is no God, there is no meaning to life. And yet everyone acts like life has purpose. I've heard it said this way, that humans are simply bags of chemicals on a large rotating rock in the middle of a meaningless universe. And if there is no God, that's true. Right? We are just bags of chemicals. We are like a collection of carbon and hydrogen and oxygen and whatever it else is that we're made of. And we are on a spinning rock in the middle of outer space in a meaningless universe. If there is no God, this is important to get, the universe was not made for any particular purpose because the universe wasn't made. And you were not made for any particular purpose because you were not made. Are you following? But here's the thing. Even people who believe that don't live like that's true. Like even people who will say, yeah, technically I don't think the world was made, so it wasn't made for any particular purpose. But even people who would say they believe that, they can't live like that's true. They still reach for success. They still try to have meaningful relationships. They still act as if their decisions matter. This idea of purpose or meaning is so deeply embedded in us that we are unable to totally reject it. Like we can, we can reject, like in our head we can go, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think there is any meaning and purpose technically. But we can't live, we can't even live, we can't, like we can say I believe that, but we can't live like we believe that. We can't totally let go of it. Where did that come from? Purpose and meaning point to God. Number four, that this world is not all there is argument. When we look at the world that we are in, we cannot help but admit that this world isn't the way it's supposed to be. 
I don't think I've ever met anybody that disagrees with this. Like, it's pretty easy to say, like, don't you think the world sometimes is not the way it's supposed to be? And everyone goes, that's for sure, right? Because there's racism, and there's genocide, and there's cancer, and there's hurricanes, and there's betrayal, and there's broken promises, and there's earthquakes, and there's tsunamis, and there are, there's just an intense amount of human suffering that exists. And we go, this isn't the way it should be. And here's an important question. How do we know that? How do we know that the world should be better? We've never lived in another world. Like, a lot of times the way you know something is, you know, not the way it ought to be is because you're familiar with the way it ought to be, right? But we've never lived in another world. Let me, let me use an illustration from my own life. Maybe this will be helpful to you. So some of you maybe grew up in a family like me where you thought your family was normal when you were growing up. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like you, you grew up in a family, and when you were six years old or seven years old or eight years old or nine years old, you thought your family was normal. If anybody asked you, like, is your family normal, you would have said yes. But here's why you would have said yes. Because it's the only family you know. You don't know any different. But one day, you turned 16 or 17 or 18 years old, and you came into contact with other families. And some of you did, like what I did, right? You went, whoa, we're crazy, right? Like, you, I, 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 didn't, I thought we were normal. And then one day, it dawns on you, like, I come from a family of crazy people. And I didn't know. I didn't know until I saw the alternative. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little, although my sister's nodding her head, so <laughs> I must not be exaggerating too much. I mean, I had, there were good things in my family growing up, but I think all of you have had that experience where you, things that you thought were usual were not. And so let me get back to our point here. Here we are. We are all in the world. We're all in the only world we've ever lived in. So why does the natural world feel so unnatural to us? Why do death and disaster bother us so much? It's the way it's always been. It's, it's all we've ever known. It's almost as if deep inside of us, we have some kind of knowledge of another world. The world that is the way it's supposed to be. But where does that knowledge come from? The world itself points to God. And so those are the four arguments that I wanted to tell you today. But I also wanted to answer the question that I just asked. The where does this knowledge come from? Because right, so far, I mean, I haven't even like, talked about the Bible yet. So far, I'm just saying there's this knowledge we have, right? We know there's a lawgiver, and we know that there's truth, and it, it, there's obligations that come with it. And we know that the world was made for something. In fact, the world was made for someone. We know that like, this world isn't the way it's supposed to be. But where does this knowledge that we all have, where did it come from? Where did we all get it? What drive through did we all go through? How did we all come up? Uh, how do we all know this? I think the Bible tells us where this knowledge came from. Romans chapter 1, I think, is probably the best place in the Bible to, to get the answer. If you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 1. How do we get the knowledge of God? So let's look at this. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, is where I want to read to you today. Romans 1, verse 18, says this. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So first of all, this verse shows us that God has wrath, right? Anger or judgment upon people who are godless and unrighteous. That's not something that 
maybe is super surprising to some of you. Some of you might go, yeah, I would have thought the Bible would say that. Here's the interesting part, though. This verse is fascinating. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness. But look at this. Of people who by their unrighteousness do what? Suppress the truth. That's an interesting word. That's an interesting word choice, right? It, it doesn't say that the godless and the unrighteous people are the way they are because they don't know the truth. It says, it's, it says they suppress the truth. It almost seems to imply that there is a truth that they have. Not that they don't know it, but that they do know it and they're rejecting it. They're suppressing it. Is that what it means? Well, let's keep reading the rest of the sentence. People who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth since what can be known about God is evident among them. Because why? God has shown it to them. So it's, it's, he's talking about the, all, there's this godless and unrighteous people. They've rejected God, right? But, but what's the problem? Because what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. There's a truth that God has shown them. They can see it. Well, how, where did they get it from? It's, it just kind of acts like it's evident to everybody. It's but God has somehow shown this stuff, this truth to, to everybody. Where, where did we all get it? Well, let's keep reading. Here's the very next verse. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. So God has these invisible attributes, and then this is really interesting. Um, I read this, I thought this was interesting when someone pointed it out to me. So his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. That's an oxymoron, right? So there's, a, there's an invisible thing. The Bible says there's this invisible thing, and everyone's seen it, right? Everybody has seen this invisible thing, right? Well, what is it? What is this thing that you can't see, and yet we've all seen it, right? His eternal power and his divine nature, everybody's seen it since the creation of the world. It is being it's being understood through what he has made. So what is his eternal power and his divine nature and his attributes, right, that are clearly seen? Well, I think that would include probably every single thing I said in the four arguments that I gave you earlier, probably plus a bunch more things, I would guess. But the fact that he's a lawgiver, and the fact that he made the world for something and there is a purpose, right? The fact that he exists and there's true and false and obligations and, and we're supposed to treat him a particular way and the world is supposed to be a certain way, like the way that God has made things, these things are clearly seen. They've been seen since the creation of the world. And then look at the verse. It says they've been understood, and this is fascinating. It doesn't say they've been understand, understood through the Bible. It doesn't say, hey, there's this knowledge of God and you all need to believe it because it is clearly evident in your Bible. That's not the argument. He does not say, goodness gracious, the Gideons have one in every hotel. Everybody's got a Bible. Everybody knows because it's in the Bible. No, it says everybody knows it's understood through what he's made. How have we understood this? It's not because it's in the Bible. It's saying this is understood because we're, not because we all have the same Bible, but because we all have the same world that we're living in. And we're all looking around at the same stuff that come, makes us come to the conclusion there is meaning and there is a lawgiver and there is someone I have obligations to and it is above us. It's through what he has made. It's because we're in this world and we can see it. As a result, people are without excuse. It's saying people actually know better. For though they knew God, and that, right, I mean, that's just crazy. It's amazing the Bible even says this, considering who it's what it's talking about. It says, for they knew God. Who's the they? It's the, the, the godless and the unrighteous, right? They knew God, but they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense, and their senseless minds were darkened. 
there came a point where they weren't thinking right. But prior to the point that they were, were not thinking right, it says they knew God. So these people that don't know God, we go, well, how, how could, you know, they don't know. The Bible says, no, there's knowledge that's evident. It's been clearly seen. They knew God, but they suppressed. They did not glorify him. They did not show him gratitude. And then their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. It seems to me the Bible is saying that there aren't really any, there aren't any real atheists in a sense. That the evidence, God is, the evidence for God is clear enough that everybody knows better. Now, you might say to that, like, well, yeah, but, but no, Mario. I really, like, I really don't know better. Like, I've thought about this a lot, and I really, I just don't know if there's a God or not. And I would say, I, mean, I get that, but I think what the Bible is saying is this. The Bible view is, the reason that you don't know is because you're a sinner. Like, your sinfulness helps you not know that there's a God. And I'm not saying that to make you, you're like, you're a terrible, rotten sinner, and it's amazing you didn't get hit by lightning when you walked in here. No, you're a sinner like everybody else is, okay? That is not unique to you. Everybody in this room is a sinner. But I'm just saying, in your case, it seems that your sinfulness is helping you suppress a truth that you do have. And that there is a God, and you are obligated. Can I have that verse back up, the one with 20? You are, you are obligated to glorify him and show gratitude to him. The Bible says that we do know that somehow. Now, here's the last piece of the puzzle. It seems to me that all of us humans have enough knowledge of God to be condemned. We have enough knowledge of God to be punished. The wrath of God is just to fall upon us because we should have glorified him and we should have shown him gratitude. So all of us have enough knowledge to be condemned for not worshiping him and for not living rightly. But I'm not sure that everyone has enough knowledge to be saved, to be reconciled to him once we've sinned. The message that you need to be saved from your sins is the message that God came into human existence in the person of Jesus Christ and that he did the right that we all know we're supposed to do. That thing that's like that we talked about earlier that we just know there's a right thing that we're obligated to do. Jesus did that, that which we were obligated to do on our behalf. And then he died on the cross for the wrong that we've done. The wrong that we all know is a thing. It's a real thing. It is wrong. And when someone does it to you, you go, that's wrong. And then you think, and I do that sometimes. So I guess it's wrong when I do it too. Jesus died on the cross for the wrong that we've done. A wrong that if left unforgiven leads to eternal judgment for me and you, right? The wrath of God comes upon those of us who have, have not glorified God and not shown him gratitude and, and have not been forgiven of it. We have done wrong, and if left unforgiven, it leads to eternal judgment for you and for me. But Jesus died on the cross for those sins, and then Jesus came back to life, proving his words to be true, proving his sacrifice to be acceptable for the forgiveness of sins. And for those, of, for those people who turn to him as king and as rescuer, he will one day bring them into a world that is the way we know the world is supposed to be. Forever. That's the gospel. And I hope that it resonates with you. And I hope that it like, matches up 
with knowledge that you already have. I hope it matches up with things that you already know to be true and that you respond in faith. And if you need help with that, there will be people who will stand, be standing up like right around this area after this service. You can come up to them and you can talk to them. If you need to, someone to talk to about this, help you with the next step, someone to pray with you, they will be here. Um, and, and even if, actually, if you want to talk to them right here, they will be available. And if you even go like, well, I don't know if I want to talk to them right here. There might be some religious lurker staring at me while I talk to them. You can ask them for their phone number and call them this afternoon if you want. But I just want you to know, like, take advantage of the knowledge that you do have and this opportunity that people are willing to help you make the next step if you're ready for it. Thank you guys. For those of you that have been here for the whole four weeks of this series, I'm glad you've been here. And if this is your very first time, I'm really thankful that you're here. Let's pray. God, I, I agree with what Doug prayed earlier. And I just pray by the power of your spirit, there would be people who would come to know you today. There would be people that would go, wow, I actually know more than I thought than I realized I knew. And I'm accountable for what I know. So I pray that there would be people who would come to know you today. I pray for those of us who are Christians that we would be um, strengthened in our faith and trust in you and helpful to other people who don't know you yet. And I pray for any of us in this room that do not know you. I pray that they would come to know you soon and would be so glad that they did and that you would save them and that they would do their part and turning from their ways to your ways. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.